of San Francisco, a Quinn Martin production. Welcome, amigos, to episode 51 of the Banish to the Pen podcast, a group baseball blog produced by diehard fans of the podcast, Effectively Wild, the daily show from baseball perspectives. I'm your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NatsGM.com and the Baron of All Baseball Podcasts. This week, I am proud to welcome back two friends of the podcast and authors at Banish to the Pen. I've got Ross Buckowitz and I've got Darius Austin. Welcome back, guys. Good to be back. Yeah, good to be here. First of all, did I get your name right, Ross? Yes, you did. Oh, good. I thought I had it. I thought I nailed it, but I just wanted yeah. to make sure. It's kind of funny because I'm at the uh, I'm on the Patreon. I'm at the shout out at the pod one of the shout out at the po- on the podcast uh, levels, and I'm guessing that Ben's going to go through <laughs> every other person at level before he gets to me because he looked at my last name and was like. Nope, not happening. Yeah, we're going to Jones. We're going to Smith. We're sticking with the easy ones here. Yeah, I can't quite work out what order he's doing it in. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe he's ranked them by easy of you know ease of pronunciation. Why would I love to have an entire podcast of them just describing why they're going, how and when they describe which Patreon supporters they're going with? Well, we just need to find somebody that's at the automatically answer their question level. And have them ask that question. That's true. That would be the golden goose, so to speak. Yeah. So, uh, guys, uh, let's let's start the show uh, the same way we start every week. Uh, I'd love to have you guys introduce yourselves to the audience for those that don't know you, um, who you're a fan of, where they can find your work, Twitter, what team you're a fan of, everything in between. Uh, start with, uh, let's start, uh, I don't know, Darius. I think that's alphabetical. Sure. Yeah, okay, so uh, I'm a Giants fan, which we'll talk a bit about uh, in a little while. Um, you can find me on Twitter at DariusA64, and uh, most of my work you can find at Banished to the Pen, but I also write a bit of fantasy stuff over at Friends with Fantasy Benefits. I've actually been checking out some of that stuff stuff at that site. I've been a big fan, so um, definitely uh, recommend it if you guys are into fantasy stuff. Uh, Ross, same question. Hey, I'm Ross. Uh, I'm Living in Milwaukee and a Bruce fan. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at just at Ross Buckwitz. Um, probably have to double check the spelling in the post of this uh, episode to get that. Um, pretty much just at Banished to the Pen. Uh, not as frequently as I'd like. I wrote a couple of uh, previews for the Brewers and uh, for Cleveland this year and got a couple ideas kicking around that hopefully we'll see in the next couple weeks. If I can work up the motivation and the time to actually, you know, write them. Well, we do need to give Ross a bit of a pass. As some people may remember, he is our uh, resident CPA of the podcast. So um, he's been a little bit in his crisis mode the last couple of months. So we'll give you a pass, my man. Oh, thank you. (laughs) That's very kind. Uh, First topic I want to talk about today, and maybe the biggest topic that we have for the week is... Um, this is kind of leading into some posts that Darius is going to be posting this week, but Darius made a trip across the pond, so to speak, and um, I guess you attended your first Major League Baseball game? Yeah, my first, my first three, in fact, uh, but yeah, I've n- never been before. All right, so, so fill, yeah. fill us in on your trip. Uh, just, I, I'd love to you just give you the mic and, and let you go. 
Okay, well, uh, so we went over to California. Obviously, I wanted to see the Giants, so that was the priority for me. Uh, so that it kind of all started with that. Um, and when I figured out that they were, we sort of planned to go over Easter anyway, that was a good time for us holiday-wise. So I was already looking at the first week of the season. And uh, when it became clear that the Dodgers were going to be in San Francisco at the end of that week, I was, you know, that kind of made up my mind for me. <laughs> so... Uh, we, uh, we went to a couple of games in San Francisco, uh, and then we also got over to Oakland to see them play the White Sox. Um, so my first game was actually uh, at the Oakland Coliseum, everybody's favourite baseball stadium. <laughs> uh, oh, jeez. Seeing, seeing the White Sox. Um, so, way, yeah, that was... Way uh, to start high, my friend. Way to start, <laughs> way to start with the best. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, I, I'd heard so many bad things about it, you know. Uh, every time I sort of read of, you know, best stadiums in baseball and... It always seems to come out last and you've heard about the sewage and, the, you know, the A's seems to have spent the last 10 years trying to leave. Um, so my expectations were probably about as low as they could have been. And actually it was fine, really. Maybe it's because I've been to a lot of um, English football stadiums, but uh, it, you know, really didn't seem that bad to me. Uh, so I'm, I don't know whether Americans come over to the UK to, to go to a football game and uh, find all the stadiums to be terrible. But uh, yeah, I was um, pleasantly surprised. I have to say. Before we dive into the stadium experience, how was it getting a ticket? Was it difficult getting a ticket? I, I'm assuming if it was either opening day or opening week. Uh, this was the, the Wednesday game, so it was the third game of the series. Okay. White Sox. Um, so it was, it was pretty easy. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't that full <clears throat> on the Wednesday night. Uh, the fortunate thing for us was that Sonny Gray got scratched because he was ill uh, from, uh, on his opening day start. Uh, which Sam's favourite Rich Hill made for him instead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I didn't, I'd, didn't I'd pay him twenty five million. Sort of the day of the game because we'd been travelling around the state uh, that we were going to get to see Sonny Gray. Uh, so that was uh, a nice surprise, and he was facing uh, Carlos Rodon as well. Um, wow! So, uh, you saw two yeah. of the best ten young pitchers in baseball. Wow! Yeah, so I got got really lucky with that because I was just kind of thinking, you know, uh, it was going to be basically the the three or four starters. Um, uh, so that was that was a cool matchup to go and see. Where were your seats? Where'd you uh, decide to sit? Well, because uh, as you might be able to imagine, uh, trying to get tickets at AT and T um, for the the first series of the season against the Dodgers it wasn't exactly cheap. Uh, <laughs> That's so... kind of what I was alluding to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for Oakland, I thought um, let's just try and sit like behind home plate, basically. So we weren't directly, you know. At ground level but we were basically the next section back right behind home and I've got a couple of good photos uh, of you know the, the position but yeah basically almost a straight line behind home plate so that was pretty cool and it was uh, a good opportunity to actually see the, the movement on the pitches uh, and, and everything from that perspective Yeah, bu um, please build off that because I'm kind of curious what were you expecting were you able to were you expecting to be able to see the movement of the pitches did you see what it, kind of what it, were you expecting and what ha what was the reality uh, I think if I found it pretty clear from there, um, it wasn't uh, too difficult. When we were in, at the Giants games, uh, we were kind of up, way up in right uh, field um, for the first, and then I was back in the, the center field bleachers for the second. And I found it a lot harder then to really tell, like I could tell whether stuff was in or out of the zone, but it was quite hard to make out the movement a lot of the time. Um, but being behind home, you could, you could really uh, get a good view. Um, neither of them really had it early on especially Radon was like missing his spots you could see by quite a long way 
so even though there's a lot of movement on the pitches, uh, you could tell that was he was nowhere near the strike zone. Um, so it was a it was a good sort of first game to go to, I think, to to get the feel for it. Yeah, and you um, saw one of the nastiest sliders in baseball with Carlos Rodon. Yeah, so it was definitely you know it, you could tell he had a huge amount of movement on the pitch, but <laughs> for the fir- at least the first inning or two, it wasn't really actually going anywhere near the strike zone. Um, but yeah, I found I was you know I wondered if like it was going to be completely different from watching on TV, where obviously you basically get to see everything with all the camera angles and that. But I, I found that to be uh, kind of more like what I was used to watching uh, in terms of seeing the movement. Uh, Ross, you have anything? I have tons of questions, but I I, I don't <laughs> want to dis or not include Ross here. <laughs> yeah, because I, I find baseball because of the shape of the plane surface kind of has some odd angles that you can view from. Is that kind of the same as in uh, football over in the UK um, being actually you know more of a uh, normal shape? Do they have any kind of the crazy angles that you've ever seen before, or um, was uh, you know sitting up in right field? Was that something new where you're from? That kind of an odd vantage point to the field. Yeah, it's, it's some things are really a lot easier to tell. Um, I felt like you know you got a much better idea when the balls were hit to the outfield. When we were up high, I could you know see much more clearly whether it was going to be a hit and and where it was going to end up. Whereas when you're kind of sitting behind uh, the plate, sort of everything kind of looks you know, you're almost mm-hmm. at ground level and it's a bit more difficult to tell where it's going to go. Um, whereas up and right, it was kind of almost straight away. You could see, you know, the reaction of all the fielders and, and the trajectory of the ball was a lot clearer from that angle. Um, but on the flip side, you know, trying to tell where, whether anything, we were almost sort of at 90 degrees to the the plate there. So trying to tell whether things were balls or strikes from there was pretty difficult. Um, you couldn't really, really get a good idea, I felt like. Um so that was that was pretty two pretty different experiences, and then I guess what you get in football most of the confusion is uh, sometimes when you're trying to tell um, like the angles on the goals. Sometimes the ball will hit the side netting, and you you'll, you'll hear it. Mm. You know, if you watch a game, you hear some fans cheer because they can't tell that the ball actually hasn't gone in the goal. Um, so that's kind of the the closest similarity, I guess, to when you can't actually get a good read on the baseball because you're at a funny angle to it. Um, but on the whole, yeah, you don't get so many different angles in football, I don't feel like. Um, mostly it's just whether you're high or low to the, the pitch uh, as to whether you, you get an idea of where the ball's ending up. But it's a lot bigger as well, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, and in the bleachers, I guess, as well, um, it was a lot harder to see because we were still quite low, but as soon as the ball goes in the air, it's quite easy to sort of lose it a bit in the crowd. Whereas when mm-hmm. we were up right field almost the whole time you've got the kind of the ball against the field so it's a lot easier to pick out the the trajectory of it um i I think the last time we had you on we were trying to encourage you to go to batting practice at least to one of the games did you did you catch bp uh only a little bit really we sort of underestimated um i didn't try at at oakland but um getting into at&t for because we went on the thursday which was the the home opener Mm. and it was pretty busy uh, so even though we were probably there at a kind of time where I would have got to see a, a decent amount, by the time we actually got into the ground, uh, there wasn't really much left to see of that. So we just kind of had a, a wander around, sort of did a lap of the, the park and had a look at everything before we, we got up to our seats. Uh, so I didn't really get to see an awful lot. We saw you know some of the warm-ups and that, but but not really much of the batting practice. 
now unfortunately. Did, now, did you dive into the cuisine? Did you help yourself to, uh, I guess it's the garlic fries in, in San Francisco and goodness lord yeah knows definitely what that was the first thing we went for that was i remember that tip so yeah i said to my girlfriend we've got to have the garlic fries everybody says ryan told me go and have the garlic fries so yeah really good really like it seemed like there was a lot you know oakland was very again that was much more like what you might get uh at a football stadium the the choice was pretty limited whereas san francisco it seemed like you could get about 30 different things and you took the words right out of my mouth. I was curious, what is the cuisine food kind of like in you know the United Kingdom at, at football games? What is it? Is it becoming foodie like it is over here? Or is it pretty much dogs, beers? What what is it like over there? I mean, the vast majority it will be like you know a burger or a pie, uh, and then a lot of guys trying to drink beer, uh, you know, fairly basic lager pretty quickly. Uh, if you go to some of the newer stadiums, probably of the Premier League teams. Uh, you might find a bit more variety. Um, I think Wembley has got, the new Wembley has got a few more exciting things now. But generally speaking, they don't try and uh, diversify very much. You know, <laughs> the, the demographic at football grounds is pretty uh, limited, I think. So they're not trying to, to target a, a wide audience. Um, I guess, you know, San Francisco as a whole seems like there's a lot more in, in terms of, um, you know, like vegan stuff and, and a range of things that you don't really get a lot uh, at other, other grounds. So it felt like the stadium was a bit of a microcosm of that. Um, you know, they had all kinds of, you know, loads of seafood, uh, loads of seafood stuff. And yeah, um, you know, different dietary requirement things were actually quite easy, which is something my uh, my girlfriend is basically uh, vegan. So she often struggles with that. And it was actually quite easy to find stuff in uh, AT&T that she could have. I was going to say, that was probably stunning for her. Yeah, well, I kind of, you know, said uh, when we'd been looking up, I said, oh, you know, look, everything looks really good. And they actually have, um, they grow their own stuff. Uh, they like have a little garden uh, bit where apparently they, they grow some of the stuff that they cook at AT&T. So it seemed like it was going to be good and, and it was quite easy uh, for her to get something veggie. Um, so that was cool. Uh, Ross, once again, I, I kind of want to let you chime in or <laughs> let you chime in, have you chime in, so to speak. Yeah, I'll then... Other thing I was really wondering is, it seems most baseball stadiums are very much in the downtown uh, kind of area of whatever city that they're in. I was kind of, I live in a city where our state, our baseball stadium actually isn't downtown. It's kind of, it's not out in the boonies, but it's in a less sparsely populated part of town because we actually kind of go with the tailgating thing that you see more at American football games. So I just kind of wonder how is is that kind of the same thing it is over uh, across the pond where you're seeing a lot of urban or very dense urban areas where this uh, grounds are located? Or is it, do you have any kind of diversity or does it kind of depend whether, you know, you're in London versus a smaller town where the team might be located? Yeah, in London, there isn't, you know, like a lot of space uh, and a lot of uh, the teams have been around for a long time, you know, uh, teams like my, I, I'm a uh, Tottenham fan. Um, and it's all, you know, pretty built up um, around where the ground is. Uh, the same is true at like Anfield, Liverpool's ground. Uh, you, you know, you're like walking through these terraces of houses, basically. Uh, and then there's Anfield kind of in the middle of this uh, incredibly residential area. Um, so a lot of them are, are pretty old now. Uh, and there isn't a huge amount of space uh, that you'd be able to, to get them in. So they tend to be in relatively built up areas. 
some of the newer ones, uh, Manchester City's stadium is quite new and that's kind of a bit, feels a bit further out of town, kind of a more newly developed area. But um, I feel like it's one of those things you probably wouldn't convince English football fans. I know there was a lot of uproar about like the uh, 49ers new stadium being such a long way from San Francisco. I don't think you'd get away with that uh, in the UK. I don't know if you know about um, Wimbledon. Uh, oh, so, yeah. I yeah. actually do because I follow uh, uh, John Green and Hank Green, and John's all about uh, the Wimbledon uh, experience, so to speak. Uh, yeah, so the Wimbledon, uh, the football team, uh, are actually now in Milton where I grew up. But, so they, they moved from North London area uh, to, um, to Milton Keynes, which in sort of the terms uh, like you were talking in America is not really that far. Um, you know, I think maybe it was it made up like a, a 40 or 50 mile move or something. So it's not like the Giants and uh, the Dodgers moving coast to coast. You know, it's a really <laughs> tiny proportion of that. But there was massive uproar about that. You know, all the Wimbledon fans basically stopped supporting the team altogether. And now there's like a, a new team that sort of rose up in the area. And like the old Wimbledon fans support them, and so the people in Milton Keynes didn't really have a team before, and so they support Wimbledon. But it's not really been uh, well received. So I think if you tried to, you know, even if it was just a few miles outside of town, for a lot of teams, people would just not go. Um, it's, it's not really the kind of thing, you know. A lot of fans are very local, and they all live in the in the city. So especially for the you know the, the clubs below the Premier League, so you don't really see it that much being a long way outside of town. Uh, Darius, when, when I think of uh, you know uh, European soccer, football, whatever we want to call it, I, I always think of the crowds being unbelievably boisterous. I mean, you think of and I'm blanking on the team now that sings before the games and the chanting and and the cheers and and, and they're very raucous, kind of by a stereotype. You sat in center field at, at at the San Francisco Giants game, which is probably one of the more rowdy areas in professional baseball for you know a stereotypical crowd did you find any comparison did you see any similarities differences or any of that stuff well this is one of the funniest uh, bits of our experience actually so um the second game at at&t i went to with uh, my brother who happened to coincidentally be over there uh, and a friend of his um and we kind of got to our seats and there was just like a, a sea of blue behind us and I've kind of been telling them that, you know, away fans just kind of sit anywhere and it's all a bit of a mix, but, uh, you know, it'll be it'll mostly be Giants fans. And there was maybe 15 rows that were just all Dodgers fans. <laughs> like, it was a huge block. Uh, a bit more like we do it in, in in the UK, except you would have, a, like, a barrier between the away fans and the home fans at a football game, usually. Uh, but we were literally the row in front, you know, of, of our bleachers. I think we were 20 and row 21 back to the, the back of the section was just all Dodgers fans, and they were going absolutely nuts. They were so loud. I think they all seemed to be uh, Spanish language speaking. So I don't know if they were like a, a Dodgers, you know, Spanish language supporters club. Every time Adrian Gonzalez came up to bat, they went crazy. They were absolutely nuts for him. Uh, and yeah, they were just every time, you know, they were trying to drown out um, everything the, the Giants chants were doing. Uh, they basically just sort of yelled, let's go Dodgers over the whole of take me out to the ball game. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, it was a fun experience, but uh, yeah, completely nuts. And you could sort of see uh, people in front of us kind of going, what's going on? Everybody seemed a bit baffled. Like, I don't think this is the kind of thing that happens <laughs> normally. Uh, 
that was a bit more like what you might get at a football game uh, with the, the fans giving it. It was all quite good natured, but um, giving each other a lot of stick. Uh, in terms of the other two games, it was a lot more like going to cricket, really. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot less of the, you know, the chanting. It's, you know, um, I think Oakland, it was a Wednesday night and I think the stadium was maybe half full. So they have all the, uh, you know, make some noise type messages going up and every now and again people get a bit excited, but it was all pretty sedate and not too wild. Everyone was very excited for the first game, the home opener. Uh, so there was a lot of, um, you know, it felt like the atmosphere was good uh, and, and uh, the Giants won, which helped a lot. Uh, so that was that was pretty cool, but um, yeah, it definitely wasn't the same level. And the variety is very great in terms of English football chants as well. Like you might have each team, you know, they'll have a, like often have a chant for different players uh, and different songs. You know, they'll have taken a, a famous pop song and then set something to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas you know, it's mostly kind of um, BLA and that kind of thing. The same things get repeated. So uh, that was yeah quite a big difference in terms of that atmosphere but definitely um the giants atmosphere was a lot more raucous than the the oakland one and i gotta ask uh did you meet up with anybody from banished to the pan or did you have any experiences where you ran into fans who you know maybe caught your accent or noticed that you were giant did you have any kind of experience in that way um i met up with a guy from from the fantasy site i write for uh justin um he's a giants fan as well and he he lives uh he's it's not too far uh, from from San Francisco, so he came in um, for that second Giants game we went to. Uh, so it was really cool to meet up with him and finally uh, meet somebody um, from all these online baseball friends I've made. Uh, and I think I don't think he grew up in the area, but he's lived in San Francisco for twelve, thirteen years now. So he's been a, a Giants fan for a while. Um, there, were, there was one guy I was wearing because I have a Tim Linscombe. Uh, Giants shirt back from when I first started following the team. Linscom was my favourite player, <laughs> so uh, I had a I had a chat with a guy, you know, sort of asking me. He didn't really seem to know um, what was was going on with Linscom, uh, so <laughs> he sort of said, you know, oh, what happened to Timmy? Kind of thing. He used to be great. He's <laughs> not the only one that, yeah. that Linscom hadn't actually signed with anybody yet. So we had sort of a bit of a little commiseration about uh, Tim Linscom's career. That was nice. Um, but mostly, it seemed like a pretty big mix of, of people. Anyway, I think it is quite a popular uh, thing for for tourists to do. Um, my brother, brother's friend, a couple of her friends who are also from the UK, had kind of people had told them, "Oh, you need to go to the, the Giants game." So they'd come to that Saturday game as well. You know, mm-hmm. coincidentally, uh, so she went off and met them for a bit. Um, and it seemed like there was quite a big mix generally. That was something that I felt was quite different from going to a, a football game. There were a lot you could sort of hear around you the mix of of knowledge uh, you know some people seem to have encyclopedic knowledge of the roster and you know how much everybody had played last season and you know um who the new call-ups were and all that kind of thing and then there'd be other people you know who might like know who buster posey was but apart from that they'd obviously come along with their family or whatever and they didn't really know that much about about the game uh, and i'm obviously used to talking about to people who know lots about the game uh, so it seemed like a, a much broader mix of um experiences and i'm used to i I think we forget that sometimes because we get so involved in talking about the game and the numbers that we forget that you know a large percentage of the crowd is there just to have a beer and a popcorn and a lemonade and and smell the you know the grass and and enjoy an evening or a night out so yeah Yeah. exactly and i'm obviously uh you know 
spend a lot of my time listening to a podcast where they discuss the most minute detail. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. We're guilty. Guilty as charged. Yeah. <laughs> well, and having the 162-game season where each individual game not meaning that much, even the most diehard, like I was at, a, you know, I was at the Brewer game last night, even as much of a diehard as I was, um, for an early season game, when you know your team's not going to be that good against uh, a team that you don't have any history with, it's tough to get up versus, you know, if I'm going to an American football, you know, if I'm at a Packer game for the, in our fo- version of football, uh, there's only 16 games in that season. So whether you've, you know, whether it's against a rival or a team you haven't played in six years, every game matters so much. So I think that's kind of more how it is with the, you're saying how the, uh, English football, everything's so much more intense, but just having that shorter season, I think, really does add a lot of intensity to each game versus, well, if you lose today, you're going to play tomorrow and the day after and the day <laughs> after for the next six months. So, yeah, and I for- think the nature of the game as well with, you know, football, you've just got the one break. It's, you know, two 45 minute uh, sections. So it feels like it's a lot more concentrated. Whereas you get the moments in baseball, but there's obviously a lot of downtime and the innings breaks, and so it's you don't really sustain the same level of excitement for that that whole time uh, that you can with a football game. I think you know British football fans would probably lose their voice if they tried to you know chant like they do a, a football match for the three hours of a baseball game. Uh, Ross, do you have anything else? I've got one or two more. Ah, uh, no, I think I'm good. Right. We got a couple more for him. Uh, I want to ask him just kind of in summary what his thoughts were, pluses and minuses to both stadiums, especially coming in with the idea that San Fran is one of the best stadiums in baseball and Oakland is one of the weaker stadiums. Uh, yeah, as I said, you know, Oakland definitely wasn't as bad as as I expected, um, and you know, maybe that's just my my experience of uh, UK stadiums. Um, but you know, it, it all felt fine, really. Uh, everything. You know, it seemed to work. There wasn't any sewage. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, it was obviously a, a hell of a lot cheaper. Uh, and uh, it was much easier to, to sit somewhere where we had a great view um, of, of the actual the pitching, which was fun for me need to be able to see. Uh, so from that perspective, I, you know, I, I thought I was going to have a good time regardless of, of what the stadium was like. I'm sure that would have been true anyway, but I was, yeah. Uh, pleasantly surprised that sort of if that's the baseline, then that was fine. You know, I would hmm. describe it as um, exciting in terms of uh, stadiums I've been to, but it was uh, perfectly fine. Um, AT and T definitely uh, lived up to my expectations, and then some. It's you know an incredible location uh, to be in. The, the having the bay there, and uh, obviously the um, atmosphere is basically full which was a big difference between there and Oakland and I felt like uh that was something you you made you know you noticed they were doing the same sort of make some noise stuff for AT&T but it kind of seemed a bit pointless because everybody was just making noise the whole time and <laughs> really excited for the game and wanted to beat the Dodgers so and I think the flow of the game certainly that that first one uh it looked like through the first I think through the first five um at least, certainly the first four. At least, Alex Wood looked, just looked like he. Um, we weren't going to get any hits off him. Basically, he seemed to be uh, confounding all of the Giants hitters, and they were had a three nothing lead 
And so I was kind of thinking, oh, is this going to be a bit depressing? I think it was just about getting to that point where <laughs> it looked like, you know, maybe this was just going to be a really flat game for the whole offense and the Dodgers were going to win comfortably. And then they came back and it was sort of uh, seesawing and it looked like after we took the lead, it looked like the Dodgers were going to come back and then Pence hit a grand slam. Uh, so that was mm-hmm. super exciting to see. Uh, but yeah, I think um, it was uh, everything I, I expected it would to be and, and a lot more really. Well, um, my final question is kind of a, a little bit of a take on that last statement you made was, was there anything that uh, happened that you weren't expecting or anything that didn't happen that you that you were expecting kind of a thing? Any curveballs to your trip? Uh, I think I certainly wasn't prepared for the amount of promotional stuff that went on between innings. Uh, I talk about this a bit in my, my first post, which hopefully I'll get up tomorrow. But... Um, I'm used to sitting there with the MLB TV app and it's, you know, commercial break in progress and you've got, you don't really have any idea what's happening between innings. And they've got all these things. They've got the races, got the giant head mascot race and, uh, you know, all this stuff on the video board and they're going around talking to all the fans and they're giving stuff away and they've got competitions. They had like a t-shirt cannon at the start of the game um, and guys had to try and catch the t-shirts coming out of the cannons. It seemed like every single moment there wasn't baseball happening. The A's uh, team were trying to do something to keep the fans engaged with, you know, something on the field or something in the stands, uh, you know, trying to get people dancing to music. Uh, so that was definitely something that I sort of didn't don't get at all from watching on TV. Um, and you don't really have, you know, they might do a little halftime promotion at a football game, but it's nothing like that. You know, they might just get some local kids out or something or there'll be a presentation on the pitch. Um, or somebody's doing, you know, showing off some some skills, doing some keep ups or something like that. Uh, so that was very different. That seemed actually much less um, of a thing at the Giants game. They did have a bit of promotional stuff, but it didn't feel like they were trying to fill every moment of non baseball with something. Uh, so I don't know if that's just because the A's um, team felt like they needed to sort of keep the fans a bit more engaged because it, you know it wasn't the Giants playing the Dodgers where the fans are already going to kind of be up for it. Uh, but that was probably the biggest thing where I felt like, uh, you know, that this is a really different experience from uh, what I thought I would get um, being at the park. That's fantastically insightful and interesting to me. Well, that's got me really thinking because you're exactly right. If you're watching it on an app, you would never have any idea what's going on between innings until you go to a game and, and realize the carnival-like atmosphere at times. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite surreal. My uh, my girlfriend was quite excited when uh, so the A's, uh, you know, the big head mascot suddenly appear <laughs> and start running out, and she's going, "What's going on here?" And I'm like, "I'm I'm thinking, how am I going to try and explain what's going on?" Here? <laughs> At least it was uh, human mascots. We have uh, five androgynous sausages that run around in Milwaukee. <laughs> Imagine trying to explain that one to a non-fan. <laughs> Yeah, and did you, I think uh, it was Michael Bauman who wrote up the uh, Philly Fanatics birthday party. Did you see that on BP the other day? <laughs> that had me sort- laughing so hard. Yeah, so it was a bit like that. I was like, oh, that's, you know, uh, big head Ricky Henderson, and that's big head Rolly Fingers, and now they're going to have a race. <laughs> it's still very strange. I could be in a dream right now. Um, you're like, and, honey, uh, yeah, you don't you don't get to see that on MLB TV. So this that is was the craziest baseball acid trip you could be on. So here's what we're gonna do. 
Yeah. And that was a yeah. pretty uh, keen observation that uh, <laughs> the difference between the Giants and Oakland, because even like here in Milwaukee, when the Brewers are doing well, a lot less of that stuff than uh, this year when they're going to lose 95 games versus when they win 95 games. Yeah, so uh, I guess it's a bit of a maybe trying to make people feel like they're getting a bit more from their trip to the ballpark. And the A's mm-hmm. did win. It wasn't like they had a miserable night or anything, but uh, it was, yeah, just very, very different from uh, any uh, other live game experience I've ever been to, I think. Yeah. Well, that's the nice thing about baseball. Even a miserable team's going to win 40% of the time, roughly. So, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, anything else you want to, you want to say about your trip, Darius? I'm kind of uh, tapped out of questions myself. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. There's a lot of, uh, stuff we went through. Um, we, we obviously got to plug the piece and when it's going to be coming out, obviously. Yeah. Well, I've got most of the first one written up. Um, I'm just sort of, uh, I've I've recapped uh, important things like the the mascot race, so I'm just sort of finishing my recap of the actual game. Um, yeah, I'm the, kind of the not into... important thing, the the actual <laughs> recap of the game, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel I think I'll focus a bit more on that in the in the Giants one, but it was uh, like the, it was two one uh, the A's game, so um, it was uh, it was fun to watch the guys pitch, but I don't want to spend ages talking about it uh, in the post because I felt like there was a a whole lot more I wanted to get in, whereas with the Giants games. Um, I think I'll, I'll focus a lot more on the baseball action, especially the second one was actually uh, probably the last almost an hour was played in basically a, a downpour. So that was mm-hmm. uh, quite an experience as well. One I'm much more used to from going to football. Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, certainly, certainly interesting. And I'm sure they wouldn't, wouldn't have started the game if it had been raining like that. But by the time it, it did start raining, they thought, right, we're just going to finish this now. Uh, how many how many pieces or how many parts to the uh, the article series and when can we expect it uh, on the site? So I'm, I'm aiming for three, so I'm going to do, do one again. So the first one, yeah, hopefully I'll get up tomorrow and then um, I'll look at, at trying to get the other two out, uh, you know, maybe uh, Wednesday and Friday this week, something like that. But um, it's one of those things, when, when you start writing these, this stuff down, you don't actually uh, know exactly how long it's going to take and sometimes I'm type of thing, oh yeah, I should talk about this or... I haven't really put enough detail about that in, so uh, we'll see how long it takes me. But certainly, uh, hopefully, to get at least the first two parts up this week. Well, I, I am really looking forward to this, and, and this chat definitely got me even more excited to read uh, kind of the pieces, and I'm intrigued to uh, kind of see your insights and read what you have to, uh, what your you know view was through your lens of your eyes, so to speak. Yeah, hopefully uh, people enjoy it. It was definitely a, a great time. So I'm trying to trying to convey how much uh, I uh, enjoyed actually going to a baseball game for the first time, which is a bit of a weird thing to do when you've followed a sport for eight years but never actually seen it live. Uh, so I'm trying to – hopefully that comes across. Well, I'm glad you had a great trip. So um, if I can transition somehow off that, I do want to jump into at least one topic in the baseball world right now. A um, couple of days ago – and depending on when everybody's listening to this, Jake Arrieta, I, I believe through the first no-hitter in the 2016 baseball season and his second in his career, I think he threw one last summer as well, the only controversial thing in it was the Cubs were leading, I believe, Cincinnati 16 to nothing, or won the game by that large of a margin and let Arrieta throw something like 135 pitches. I feel like maybe we're jumping into a little bit of an effectively wild topic, but maybe that's great because we're all fans of it. But 
I, I, I'm going to go with the hot take and just say that I thought the Cubs made a big mistake keeping Arietta in the game, and I think they should have pulled him in the sixth or seventh inning and saved those bullets. Um, you guys have any opinion on on the matter? Well, I, I just completely agree with you that there's no real reason to uh, subject him to pitching when he's even if he, I know I, I wasn't watching the game live, so I don't know how you know what his velocity and what his mechanics were looking like. But there's no way somebody's 130 pitches into a uh, a start, even one where they're doing well enough to have a no hitter, that they're not laboring and at an even greater risk of uh, injury than you are any other time you're pitching. And um, I actually just kind of thought about this. Uh, it's amazing to see the contrast between what happens when it's a star pitcher going for a no-hitter versus kind of a back-end guy, because who was it with the Dodgers that... Uh, uh, Dave Ross, Robert, Ross Stip, Stripling? Stippling? Yep. Yeah. Where uh, Dave Roberts pulled him in the, what, seventh inning when, since his pitch count was getting up there, and it would have been kind of unreasonable to let him finish it versus Jake Arrieta being the star. You're not really going to deny your, your best player the opportunity, even if it's not necessarily the best idea to allow him to go for it uh go ahead and jump in uh Darius I'm sorry go ahead yeah I'm not, it sounded like uh, I read something about the the Cubs sounding like they'd actually talked about this quite a lot in the offseason I don't know how often this happens with teams where they actually put together contingency plans for no hitters um so it did sound like something that they'd thought about in advance um I guess you know they they know the players better than anyone, um, but certainly it seems like, especially someone like Arietta, who threw I don't know how many more innings he he threw than ever before last year, but it was a lot, wasn't it? I think it was maybe fifty or sixty more than he'd ever thrown before, and they're obviously hoping to go really deep into this season. So it definitely feels like a situation where maybe you want to be pretty cautious, especially this early in the season. Um, but on the other hand, it really felt like they kind of were confident about it. You know, they knew what uh, they were expecting out of him and there didn't seem to be any concern from them after the game about how many pitches he'd thrown or, uh, you know, they didn't seem to think he was he was laboring. So I'm a bit bit torn. I've sort of, I've always thought um, when teams talk about the pitch counts and, and especially with the stripling thing, Dave Roberts sounded, he was like, like he was, okay, he's got to 100 now he's done and I'm kind of like well is that what you said before the game or did you say if he looks you know like he's really laboring or if he's tired then we're going to pull him because I kind of feel like the 100 in itself doesn't really mean anything and so if the Cubs you know they know what Arias's mechanics should look like and everybody's watching him and they think you know at the at the end of the seventh or the eighth you know he looks fine and they don't think there's any risk then who am I to say that there that it, there is any risk to let him go up there another inning or two and complete it so I'm a bit torn on it, really. I'm not quite sure uh, what the call is. Let me be the one to then question the decision if you don't want to do it, because <laughs> I, I find this to be baffling on so many levels. I mean, Arietta, and you said it perfectly, Darius, first and foremost, of Arietta threw, what, 60 or 70, 80 innings more than he's ever thrown last season, both because he was fully healthy and they went deep into the playoffs. We're talking about an April game in, I, I believe they were, it was not a warm night, if if I have my memory recollection going well for me. It's an April start. This is a team that, that is trying to win 100 games and to win the World Series with a with their ace pitcher who should be pitching 250 to 260 innings. 
and this man has had injury problems in the past in college on his arm. He's had some injury troubles before, and the team was winning 16 to nothing. And I think that's the biggest point that needs to get pounded home. There is almost no chance you're losing that game. I mean, it is point zero 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 one that you lose that game. I mean, you could probably throw out a, a, a position player and have them pitch, and you're going to win the baseball game. To have him throw 30 or 40 extra pitches on his arm, particularly pitches 100 to 130, is is I think it's a sin. I mean, and I hate to say it that way, but I think it's it's the biggest mistake you can make. I mean, no hitters to me are a status symbol these days. I mean, they don't really mean much, and when they're happening four or five times a year, they're like a three-home run game now. They're almost to legitimize somebody's career as a good pitcher. We all know is a great pitcher. If this was Armando Galarraga, yeah, let him go for the no-hitter. It's going to be the highlight of his career probably. But this, to me, is just a major mistake on so many levels. And I, I, I never or rarely question Joe Madden, but I think this was a woeful mistake on his part. Particularly, I mean, this was, uh, what, he had four walks. He only had six strikeouts. Or he wasn't even dominating. He was just kind of getting through. And just, you know, he, he's that good that even the Knights, he's not dominating. And maybe doesn't have the best location, uh, best control, he can still go out and throw a no-hitter, but yeah, I just can't imagine it's worth it, especially not being his first no-hitter, since he already has one from Thank last you. year, where he Another. was the dominant guy who was mowing him down batter after batter. But I think that probably would have tilted it to saving some of those bullets for a more important time for me. And I'll play devil's advocate. I think that down the road, Madden looks a lot better if he pulls him in that game. And even if he gets hurt down the road, he looks a lot better than if if Arietta gets hurt in July with his arm. This is going to come back and bite him in the rear end so bad. And I know we shouldn't be managing. We I know the guys shouldn't be managing to cover their butt, but that's basically what they do. So I I think it was just. A, Maybe the the worst move of Madden's career. I, I really think it was a horrible mistake. And I guess the yeah. other thing is, uh, you know, unless more managers start doing like what Dave Roberts did and taking them out, then it's going to perpetuate. Isn't it? Uh, you know, it's still going to be that same status. And if this happens, you know, if some happens a few more times, p- players get taken out in the seventh or the eighth because they they have thrown too many pitches then it stops being so much of a big thing. It's not going to be like, oh my God, you pulled the guy from the no-hitter because actually it will, it will become more normal and people won't make as much of a fuss and then managers won't feel as pressurized into leaving the guys out there in that situation. And maybe I'm trying to make a point a little bit about the, I don't want to say meaningless nature, but the lessened nature of a no-hitter. I mean, this is now happening, what is it, 15 times probably in the last... 10 or 15 years. I mean, this is not something that where 25 years ago or a generation ago, this was a big deal. I mean, this is, it's still a big deal, so to speak, but it's, it's like a three home run game from a player. Now I would think it's not something that's particularly rare. And as um, Ross, you pointed out so well, he did it last year. I mean, this isn't something that he hasn't done before. I, I, uh, I just don't, I don't get the, I don't think it's that big of a feather in the cap these days. Well, especially as we see less and less contact, fewer and fewer balls in play. Oh, I think my girlfriend just got home and she doesn't have a key. I'll be right back, actually. <laughs> I think we can hold down the fort, but uh, 
for a minute, but I would love to. We can also point to the Sam Miller article. I think it was Pebble Hunting this week where he pointed out that the 19 or 20 strikeout game is a bigger deal or a bigger uh, feat, so to speak, than it is uh, than a perfect game. So, yeah, and, and Tanner Rock was on his way as well, <laughs> and, and that was an incredible start. So I, I think that there's something to be said for that as well. All right, I'm back. <laughs> I think we held down the Ford pretty well. Yeah, sorry about that. She uh, is walking a neighbor's dog who's out of out of town, you know, for a couple of days. So she had left at about two thirty, and normally it's uh, about an hour and a half, a little over an hour and a half. And yeah, today was a little bit shorter of a walk. So, so. All I'm right. sorry about that. No problem. Uh, so the final point, I think, uh, and Ross, you brought this up off air, was that you wanted to bring up kind of about the area the subject is that. You saw, and I'll let you go from here, but you just saw a lot of people tweeting out about the Jay Garrietta trade to Chicago a few years ago by the Orioles. Well, yeah, I, I think whenever Arietta does something particularly impressive or even just has a particularly impressive result, whether or not he uh, was the sole factor in that, whether, you know, this one, he probably had a little bit of luck on his side for this particular no-hitter, but everyone wants to go back and retweet the... Uh, the original tweet the Orioles sent out saying that they are trading, you know, Jake Arrieta and for was it Steve Clevenger and um, Pedro Strope went one way Pedro and Feldman went the other. Yep. Well, everyone wants to be like, oh, ha, ha, look at the Orioles. They're so dumb. They traded away Jake Arrieta. It's like, well, that's actually not what's dumb about uh, the Orioles situation with Arrieta. It's the fact that Jake Arrieta basically threw 40 innings in the minors, 40 or 50 with the Cubs, and in that short time frame, they were able to fix him to the point that he's one of the two or three best pitchers in the world. It's not that the Orioles are dumb for trading away. It's that they're so dumb, they couldn't figure out how to allow Jake Arrieta to be one of the best pitchers. It's more play- The player development's what's the issue here. It's not the fact that they he happened to be the guy they traded away and they didn't know any better. I'm sure they knew just how good Jake Arrieta should be. It's just they, at this point, they kind of gave up on ever being able to get that out of him. I think you should be making fun of the Orioles for how poorly they developed pitchers the last few years, personified by Arietta, not just the fact that, oh, they, they traded away Jake Arietta right before he got amazing. And, and to, to build off your pointer and, and to further it, I think when that trade was made, everybody thought that the Cubs were making a gamble on a guy that needed to change his scenery and had mm-hmm. the stuff. I mean, this wasn't one of those, uh, just, you know, we're dumping salary and whatever. I mean, this was definitely a guy that the Cubs targeted as a change of scenery, bounce back, needs a tinker, you know, whatever cliche you want to throw in there type of an acquisition. And like you say, it wasn't a, a long process before he was in the majors as a really solid pitcher and is now the. I don't know, second, third, fourth best starting pitcher in baseball? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's 30 of these trades a year where you take a talented guy that hasn't been able to put together for one reason or another and just send him off for what you can get out of him. I mean, and 28 out of 30 of those fail, exactly, to your point. Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, half the Brewers starting lineup right now and a couple of the guys or a couple of their starters they got for Carlos Gomez that they originally uh, – got from the Twins for a uh, J.J. Hardy, who they were going to non-tender that offseason anyway. Like, yeah. Sure, that one worked out. Jake Arrieta worked out. But almost every single one of these fails. So I think it's kind of a 
lot of hindsight uh, analysis that kind of is going on around Arietta. And this actually kind of brings up another point where I think that everyone likes to make fun of the don't grade a trade when it happens. Well, no, I think you need to grade a trade as it happens and then later so you can kind of break off and determine whether or not it was a scouting fail or a player development fail or whatever else that caused the mistake to be made or if you want you know to give credit to the Cubs uh player development stuff like that so I just think that there's a whole lot of uh snark that's not actually very funny that's getting thrown around with this Arietta thing but maybe I'm just a bit of a curmudgeon on this one no and and I want to I want to further your point as well about um the deal has to be graded at the time. I mean, you're trading a commodity, whether it's a player, whether it's a draft pick, money, acquiring, whatever it is. You're trading a commodity. You want to get the best in return for that commodity that you can. So you have to be able to judge it, even if it's just in that prism of did they do as well as they could have for what they gave up to get. I, I think you have to be able to judge a trade at the time. Otherwise, you're just being a fool. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it would be like saying I paid a dollar for this water well was that a good purchase at the time well if there's free water next to you no it wasn't a good purchase but if there's nothing around and you're thirsty and you have ten dollars in your pocket it's probably not a bad buy i mean it's it, 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 there has to be some kind of a decision at the time mm-hmm, and exactly. that was a horrible example but i hope everybody at least followed along <laughs> <laughs> no i yeah I, I get what you're saying yeah that's kind of a larger point that people I feel like people just don't ever want to have to make a decision until they already know the answer. And that's really easy to do when we're sitting here on the, I'm um, sitting here in my office watching or looking out into my backyard versus when I'm, if I'd be sitting in an office at Miller park, trying to make a decision with some around people that are getting paid millions and millions of dollars a year. Yeah. Very true. Uh, Darius, I feel like uh, maybe we've been talking a little more than you have. Just want to, See if you got anything to add or jump in or tag in. Well, I, I was just uh, play indexing to uh, back up your earlier point, actually. But there have been uh, 24 no hitters just for by a single player since the start of the 2011 season, and then there's been another two uh, multiple pitcher no hitters. So 26 in total in the last uh, five and a bit seasons. So almost so, one a month. Yeah. I mean, literally, yeah. if there's six months, six a se- you know, six months in a season. Yeah, basically, yeah. Not not far off one a month. Thank you. I just had a very nice Ben Lindbergh, like, you know, getting a credit moment there. I feel very good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Play Index. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it's funny. I was uh, looking up some fun stuff in the, on there, too, and I'm uh, using every single working device I have right now, but I know there's been... Arietta had, what, tied for the, like, seventh most walks in a no-hitter, and... There were actually two guys that had a no-hitter where they gave up multiple unearned runs since, uh, I, don't know, I think, in the last like 40 years or so. I can't recall them off the top of my head, and I can't get I can't access the play index at the moment. But It's got to be Nolan Ryan, one of them. That guy would throw 170. Oh, I know. He, he would just walk everybody. He was yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was like, ah, screw it. I'll just walk this guy. I can get the next guy out. God, ben, yeah. ben wrote about some of those 19 strikeout games this week, and some of those lines he put up about Nolan Ryan were just crazy. He had like nine walks in a game. It was like, okay, no problem. Yeah, him and him and Randy Johnson, I feel like had the yeah the two most where it's like they're crazy dominant, but at the same time they gave up a ton of base runners because they're like ah, I'm not going to serve up a meatball to this guy. I'll just go get the next guy out. 
It reminds me of like a fifth grader coming home and saying, yeah, I threw a no-hitter, Mom. Oh, what was the score? 12 to 10? <laughs> you know, there were a few they, errors, you know. We definitely had – I definitely played in a game once where uh, it was a no-hitter and it was like a 9 to 8 game because there were six, seven walks. Uh, our pitcher had six, seven walks, and we had three, four errors behind him. Uh, that kind of compound. I think he had – I think he gave up a four-run inning without uh, giving up a single hit in it. Oh. Sounds like a low A game I was at the other day, but that's another story. <laughs> well, this was uh, what was it? it was the summer after our freshman year of high school, so we were playing Babe Ruth ball still, and almost everybody on the team had already played, you know, their high school season. So we didn't really care that much about the Babe Ruth season at that point. He was just uh, particularly on that day that mm. nobody could uh, get a hit off of him. Goodness. Uh, guys, I think maybe this is a good place to wrap it here for the week. Um, I think this is a uh, maybe the spot that we should uh, end the show the same way we open it and uh, just have you guys share your Twitter, where we can find you. And uh, Darius, I'd love for you to plug uh, your pieces for this week especially. So uh, go ahead, my friend Darius. Okay, yeah. So if you are interested in reading about my trip, you'll be able to do so over the next few days at banishtothepen.com. Um also hoping to get some more things up on Friends with Fancy Benefits uh, soon, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, I'm DariusA64 on Twitter. Uh, if you really want to hear me on another podcast, I've just realized that I haven't. I was actually on Effectively Wild since I was last on here, uh, which I'd forgotten. Oh, yeah. You were yeah. great on the show. I think I, I think we mentioned you and gave you a shout-out, but you were definitely yeah, tremendous. Yeah, so thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, I think that was only a couple of weeks after I was last on here. Uh, so that was exciting. So if you want to hear about the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, and uh, Warren Spahn getting rested against uh, them back in the 50s, then uh, I went on effectively well to talk about that. Um, and yeah, that's about it for me, I think. Very, very cool. Definitely listen to that podcast. That was a, that was a great episode. I really enjoyed that. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, they're stealing our guests now. That's not fair. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, I, I was just as surprised, if not more so than everybody else. <laughs> Well, you, you represented us well and, and yourself as well. You did a great job. So um, congratulations and great job. Thanks for coming on this week. Uh, Ross, say goodbye. Bye, Internet. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, <laughs> at Ross Buckowitz. Uh, mostly just writing at Banish to the Pen. And hopefully, like I was saying, I think I got two different ideas, one fun, one serious, uh, coming up that I'll hopefully be able to get up in a timely manner but yeah so that's pretty much it well i want the brewers fans guide to tailgating at miller park i want that column written <laughs> oh. at some point so. so maybe one serious and two fun because um I, i've got faith in you giving a good perspective on that for some reason knowing you as i do so well yeah i mean i I'm, <laughs> i believe you had a fun time at your uh the one yes i did tailgate when you were when you were able to come up here uh, last summer. so From what I remember, it was tremendous. <laughs> and that's part of the problem uh, <laughs> when you come to Milwaukee. You might not remember it. Well, you just don't remember leaving anyways, which is <laughs> yeah. helps with the traffic. So, uh, But in seriousness, thanks, Ross and Darius, for coming on. Uh, a lot of fun talking baseball with you, Darius. I'm glad you had a great trip. I look forward to your uh, hopefully three-part series, and um, I look forward to Ross's next uh, columns as well. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Ryan. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, guys. 
And that was episode 51 of the Banished to the Pen podcast with Ross Buckowitz and Darius Austin. Uh, I want to thank them both for joining me and uh, really looking forward to Darius's, uh, I guess, three-part article about his uh, experience traveling and seeing his first Major League game. So I'm excited for that. Uh, Probably coming out Monday, Wednesday, Friday this week, although um, you never know how things end up. But uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, another thing I want to remind you about as well is episode two of the NL Central podcast with uh, another group of characters from uh, Banished to the Pen. Uh, that'll also be dropping sometime this week, so uh, keep your ears out for that audio gold sometime. Finally, uh, Ben Lindbergh, the godfather or the co-godfather of this podcast, along with Sam Miller, is doing a book signing and an appearance in Washington, D.C. at Bus Boys and Poets on May 11th. Uh, I think I'm going to try to get out there. Um, so I, I was just going to try to encourage everybody, let's get a nice turnout um, and get and get a nice turnout from Banish to the Pen, the audience and the writers and everybody. It would be good to uh, support the Godfather and uh, good to see him as well. Um, can't meet a nicer guy. So uh, May 11th, uh, Busboys and Poets in D.C. Um, supporting, obviously, uh, the release of their new book. So uh, check that out. That's it for this week. I am reminding you all, be nice to your fellow listeners.